Hello and welcome to Sounds Strategic, the podcast of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. I am Antonio Sampaio. Hi, I'm Ayn Owens. So today we will pick the brain of Franz Stefan Gadi, the IISS Research Fellow for Cyber, Space and Future Conflict. Hi, Franz. How are you doing? Hey, how are you, Antonio? Great to be on the program. Good. Thank you. Um, Franz, you have probably the coolest job title in the Institute. When people hear future war, I think immediately images of tech-savvy militaries come to mind. But of course, there is more than technology to this. When militaries talk about future of war, what are their main priorities right now? What does this field of study um, involve in terms of their main topics right now? Well, thank you for this question. I think it's a it's a great one. And I think it, it really points to a a rather big misunderstanding, perhaps in the you know outside the defense community community that is that technology is the main driver of change in how militaries fight future wars. Um, in reality, technology or one should really say technological capability alone does not really initiate new war fighting methods, so to speak. Um, rather, it is often the starting point of a conversation about changing war fighting methods. So what you really need in order to have a good good conversation about future warfighting is really talking about uh, military doctrine. Um, doctrine is really essentially just means guidelines how military envisions it will fight in a future war. And, and you really need a combination of technological capability and uh, military doctrine in order to really, really uh, be able to project how future warfighting is likely going to take place. And and this is really happening right now um, across all the NATO militaries and across all the militaries, at least in the so-called Western countries. And all of them are right now working on um, so-called operational concepts, which is really just a precursor to doctrine. You can sort of call it the first draft of military doctrine. And what these operational concepts are really trying to do is try to figure out how to incorporate new technological capabilities, such as artificial intelligence, but also cyber capabilities um, into new warfighting methods. And and I think overall, this is a quite unique discussion when it comes to uh, um, um, future of war deliberation. And it's it, the last time we had something similar was really in the late 1970s and early 1980s, where NATO countries and the US were were really trying to figure out how to deal with very specific operational problems posed by the Soviet military um, in, in Europe. So I think it's, it's an interesting time to talk about all of this stuff. Definitely. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts on the changing character of war, uh, friends, which has, of course, been a recurring source of debate. So from your perspective, uh, how has the character of war changed or hasn't it changed in their lifetime? And perhaps more importantly, what's the connection here between the changing nature of war and the changing character of war? Do we see one and not the other or do we see both to a different extent? Uh, well, that's 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 another great question. As a good student of Clausewitz, I, of course, would have to say that uh, the nature of war remains constant. It's not really changing that much. And by nature, I really mean that that, that all future wars will also be dominated by friction. That is, there are going to be unexpected events. It's never going to really turn out the way that you want it to turn out. You're going to have the fog of war. You're going to have all these other factors that are really going to prevent you from having a clinical solution to any military problem. 
Um, what's really changing is, is the character of warfare, and that's really mostly about warfighting methods. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the so-called information revolution. And, and the debate is really about to what degree the information revolution has changed um, warfare. And this is actually a pretty old debate if you go back. I mean, relatively old. Um, it's pretty much started or has been going on since um, the 1990s. And you can really broadly divide it up into two camps. There are those who think that the character of warfare has been fundamentally changed by the information revolution, that is IT, uh, technology, computers, and so forth. Um, and those who think that the information revolution has really not changed that much when it comes to the fundamentals, how wars are fought. And a lot of this goes back really to um, the crushing defeat that Saddam Hussein and his military suffered during the second Gulf War by the United States and its allies. Um, back then, a lot of defense analysts saw this as evidence that um, digital enabled military technologies such as uh, precision guided munitions and intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities will fundamentally change how militaries in the future will organize, equip and fight an enemy. And this debate has then slowed down a little bit after 9-11 um, with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, but has recently gained momentum again over the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years um, with the growing prominence of cyber warfare capabilities and the rise of narrow artificial intelligence, um, which has really huge potential for military use when... Um, um, you know, when you think about it in terms of as a new, uh, you know, new command and control capabilities or really command and control tools for managing the battle space and um, also for, let's say, operating autonomous platforms. And I think it's uh, the basic problem we have in the field when it comes to future warfighting or thinking about future warfighting is, is that it's really hard to present any evidence for either side because we have not really seen high intensity state or, um, uh, you know, near peer conflict peer on peer conflict um, when it comes to also to most of this and 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 also most of these technological capabilities that we are talking about now um, that could potentially influence the character of warfare are still still fairly inf immature and um, if it just can cite one historical example I think a lot of what we're seeing right now very much resembles the discussion around air power in the 1930s where um, you know there wasn't really a big air power campaign during the First World War, and it was mostly really theory in the late 20s and 1930s, and a lot of analysts and even militaries overhyped it. Uh, some dismissed it, but it definitely had a huge impact subsequently in World War II, but it didn't have that revolutionary impact that someone envisioned. And and I think that's, that's I think, going to be fairly similar how this debate might play out in the future. And, and I guess when it comes to especially I think when it comes to cyber capabilities, um, given that cyber really permeates all other warfighting domains and unlike the air domain and the second world war, um, I do think that, that this has probably the biggest potential for any sort of strategic surprise in the next couple of decades when it comes to future warfighting. Um, and, and I think future high-tech warfare will simply not be possible without strong cyber defenses or offensive capabilities, um, you know, within the so-called electromagnetic spectrum. And so I guess um, our job as analysts is to really figure out how cyber-enabled warfare um, is going to look like a few decades down the road. Mm. Franz, you've mentioned the Gulf Wars, and obviously that, that, that was, as you said, a classic example of the 
perhaps the, the changing character of war becoming more tech savvy and um, technology being used for the shock and awe of uh, U.S. military um, engagement there. Um, but when we look at uh, the future technologies or the current technologies that are shaping the future of conflict and war, um, often it is also discussed that smaller powers, smaller countries will also benefit because of a democratization of certain technologies such as artificial intelligence that challenges to the um, US-led international order, such as China, but also potentially smaller countries um, will have access to technologies that they didn't have. So do you think that um, this this future looking technologies are uh, democratizing war and perhaps making war more likely? I think it depends what type of warfare we're looking at when it comes to high intensity combat um, and and really uh, state on state warfare. I do think that the leading military powers will remain the leading military powers because all of this requires an enormous amount of R&D. And I don't think it's as easy as one might think to transform these capabilities from one military to the next. And it really goes back to what I originally said. I think a lot of this debate is really mostly confined to technological capabilities very often. And I do want to go beyond that. Um, military power does not depend solely on technological capabilities. There are so many other factors. I mean, that's why I mentioned at the beginning operational concepts and doctrine, but also really um, what people perhaps don't understand is when you look at uh, the effectiveness of modern militaries at its core, really, at its core, it's what's called combined arms operations. That is operations where you synchronize your operations, um, for example, an attack on an enemy position with a host of different platforms in the battle space, right? So when you execute an attack, you have um, you know long-range missiles hit a target, you have airstrikes, you have short-range artillery. Um, simultaneously, you have your armored formations, your tanks um, advancing, and then you have electronic warfare uh, in the background, cyber strikes that are disabling enemy command and control centers and so forth. And all of this is happening in various domains and is executed by various um, 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 services, whether it's the Air Force, uh, the land forces, naval, uh, the naval forces. And all of this has to be well coordinated and and it's really this ability to coordinate these sorts of operations fast and effectively that is really at the core of military power at all levels of operations so i think that's sometimes really um disregarded when you talk about the future of warfare because i wouldn't really focus that much on technology but also focus on okay what are the doctrines of these countries and are they actually capable of conducting combined arms operations in the future. And I guess a big question will be in the future, are combined arms operations going to be still of importance in the future? And I think um, a simple rule of thumb here would be essentially um, if your forces would be able, or if there is any technology out there in the future, whether it's artificial intelligence enabled or um, other stuff that really would prevent your forces from achieving their objectives um, 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 while executing combined arms operations. Because I think one of what I should add, and I hope I'm not confusing you with all of this, is that combined arms operations can only really work if you if your forces are able to hide and seek cover um, in the modern battle space. So whether it's stealth technology or really common camouflage stuff that forces can do just because over the last decades precision strike capabilities have become so sophisticated that once you lose your cover and fail to conceal your moves from the enemy um, while you're coordinating your actual attack that I described earlier on 
your forces are likely to get hit and get hit very hard. I mean, that's exactly what happened during the second Gulf War with Saddam Hussein's forces. They were partially able to execute combined arms operations, but they did a fairly poor job in terms of concealing and hiding from enemy forces. And then they just got devastated by precision strikes uh, from the United States and its allies. So I guess a long-winded answer um, um, to, to talk about the democratization of, 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 of uh, future warfighting is that, yes, technological capabilities will play, play a role there, but I also would really like to see you know, more focus on doctrine and other capabilities that are really not related specifically to techno technology in order to make a judgment about this. Mm. Here in the UK, the government is considering cuts in the army personnel of up to 20,000, 20,000 less um, members to the standing army. As countries grapple with the economic realities of coronavirus, um, as well as perhaps higher priority being placed on internal issues such as health systems, resilience, do you see um, the future armies reducing their, their personnel more consistently. Um, and does the, does the technology, I know it's not all, all, all about technology, but does technology, the new technologies of warfare um, tend to allow militaries to reduce their human personnel and perhaps even uh, budgets? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I think it really gets to the core of what's happening right now and the sort of debates that have to happen um, everywhere in defense ministries uh, across across Europe and in the United States. Um, and that is really how do you integrate these different capabilities on the one hand and what can you really uh, do in terms of cost saving measures as a result of integrating these new capabilities? And I think in the near, near term, the answer is most likely no, you're not going to be able to reduce much capability just because um, most of these new technological capabilities, again, for example, in art, you know, in artificial intelligence, are still in a fairly rudimentary state of development. Um, one example where I do see that eventually you can probably reduce a lot of manpower is, for example, in logistics. Um, it's a very promising field where you can probably save money and manpower in the near-term future, and um, you can really do that by having a more decentralized um, logistical distribution system that's really based on some sort of AI-enabled capability, and we see that already in the commercial space to a certain degree happening. Um, but it's really not just one technology that would make the breakthrough here. It's really, let's say, um, in that particular instance, talking about uh, additive manufacturing or 3D printing, as it's also called, I think that would really revolutionize military logistics. And it is already happening to a certain degree. But I think um, the real breakthrough there will be if you really are able to mass produce and quickly produce these um, these these um, spare parts, so to speak, for your forces and really have a distributed system uh, of logistics. Because I think also generally the future of warfare or future warfighting will, will see much more dispersed formations and a much more dispersed force structure um, just because it will make um, individual forces and units less vulnerable to devastating volley strikes or really precision strikes that takes out an entire unit at once. And um, I think like specifically um, with regard to COVID-19, and I do think there's a big incentive about policymakers in Europe and the United States about reducing military capabilities right now. I think um, I think you need a. I, I want to add a word of caution, and and perhaps that goes back to my initial comment about Clausewitz, and that is, um, we cannot really ignore the dialectical nature 
of military competition. That is, if you're saying, okay, the future of warfighting is really going to be all about cyber-enabled capabilities and artificial intelligence and new technological capabilities, and we build all our um, operational concept and doctrine around these sorts of things, um, I think it will spell disaster from a military perspective in the long run because just focusing on one single domain or capability at the expense of others um, is just not going to work because military competition essentially is dialectical in nature. That is, you know, it's a constant game about strengths and weaknesses. And um, as some scholar once called it, there's a paradoxical logic to all of this. That is, um, all your strengths that you have in your military will eventually become a weakness and vice versa. So the idea about like um, deliberate and good force structure planning and, and investments in military capabilities is that you still in the future will need to preserve core capabilities in all the different domains and in all the different um, 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 services. So I guess you can reduce some of that stuff because of COVID-19, but you cannot get rid of entire service branches, for example, or just you know uh, get rid of, of, of entire arms, in my opinion, at least. So how do you think what how do you think militaries are going to involve evolve with regards to this defense mix if if I call it anything um of you know focusing on emerging technologies and and building the doctrine um, to prepare for that in the future and and the integration of that into modern militaries via the uh current um investment in modern conventional uh weaponry I mean what is what does this balance look like ultimately it has to be a carefully struck one and I take that this will be um, there will be balanced trade-offs uh, that are unique to uh, certain countries. And I suppose here alliances will play a, a major role as well, leveraging those uh, strengths and weaknesses uh, in current capabilities and future capabilities. Yes, I think that's a really good question. I think um, what everyone is trying to figure out how to really merge all these different things into new warfighting methods. And that's why I said at the beginning also, this is a rather interesting time in terms of studying operational concepts. Um, the United States, like in the 70s and 80s, is really taking the lead there. They came up with, um, they're going to unroll actually a new concept called um, uh, all domain warfighting concept by the end of this year or early next year that is really trying to partially address this integration of cyber space um, capabilities with all the other capabilities that are gonna uh, become mature in, in the next couple of years, whether it's AI again, or even quantum computing and so forth, so hypersonic missile systems and all of this together. Um, I think that's the big question, right? We, I think you need a lot, we need to do a much more war gaming, for example. There should also be a much broader public discourse about what kind of uh, capabilities um, are really needed. And I think um, you, you, you should start it though with, I think the simpler you keep this whole discussion, the better, right? So I think my first, my first start would be what kind of specific operational problem are you trying to solve with um, a specific new capability that you want to introduce. I don't think you need to innovate for the sake of innovation. Um, that usually doesn't go anywhere. Um, it's a, you know a lot of people talk about defense innovation these days and how this is really gonna be a hugely important field. It never was not an important field, right? Um, you you definitely need to need to question though why do we need certain capabilities? And if you talk about um, you know, specific operational problems. The United States military, the Pentagon, they're working on, on different scenarios like most other militaries, but they really started off asking very simple questions. Okay, 
how do we do this and that in the modern battle space in a future high intensity conflict with a near peer or peer competitor? And from there, they sort of derived all the other capabilities that you need to do that. And I think that's how you need to do it after, right? In reality, um, align your resources to, to specific problems. So I think um, if you want to have a serious discussion about it, let's be more serious about identifying really problems in future warfighting first, and then see what kind of techno uh, cap technological capabilities are really are really useful for that. So, um our most avid listeners, friends, will know that I am a big fan, a big um, student of um, urban terrain as, 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 a, as a place and as a um, factor shaping conflict and, and war. So, and indeed, one of the frequent areas of discussion in terms of future military concepts is rapid urbanization and the likelihood of war in cities or increased likelihood. Uh, do you uh, do you have any opinion on this, on whether wars in cities are more or less likely with uh, rising uh, numbers of people living in cities throughout the world? Uh, do you think there's any significant change in the character of war that might carry implications for urban warfare? That's a that's a really interesting question too, and um, I think there are a couple of ways to answer that. Um, first, uh, when it comes to some of the world's leading military powers involved in urban warfare, I think these are mostly going to be wars of choice rather than wars of necessity in the sense that um, if I look at different scenarios where the great powers could be fighting wars in the future, I just don't see that much urban space, for example. When you think about you know, the Baltics, a, a, a clash between NATO and Russia, I don't think there's going to be much urban combat there, in my opinion. If you think about any Taiwan-based scenario with the People's Liberation Army, Yes, of course, there's going to be an urban component to it, but I think it, so much else must have gone wrong for this to really be happening. When it comes to warfighting in other parts of the world, I do see that uh, you know that involves less less capable militaries. I do think that chances are increasing that we're going to see more urban combat happening. However, I do want to say that perhaps um, the basics will broadly remain the same no matter what new technologies are going to be introduced. And by that, I mean... You're still going to rely mostly on fire and maneuver. Um, you're still going to be mostly fighting at the infantry level, at the platoon or company level. You're going to have perhaps precision guided munitions um, at the platoon or, or at least you know other tactical levels um, to help facilitate or at least help uh, avoid um, collateral damage, as it's called. Um, you're going to probably have better friend-foe identification for infantry units fighting. And then uh, from my own experience, just as a, as a soldier um, who's also trained, uh, been trained in urban combat operations, I think one of the most difficult parts, actually, in urban combat remains um, to find out where your own troops actually are and where the enemies are. And I think that's that's just fundamental when it comes to any new technological capabilities that are going to be introduced there. So if you have something that really would revolutionize that, I think that it it could make uh, you know it potentially could have a huge impact. But I do don't I don't think it's going to affect really the the fundamentals when it comes to urban combat operations as we see them today. And um, I think also what's probably going to be interesting to point out here, and that's really not my original research, others have done that before, is that what we will likely see when it comes to urban combat is um, um, rather than a fundamental change, we're probably just going to see an accelerated pace of operations. Uh, in other words, operations might be conducted faster because of new technological capabilities, but um, it's not going to fundamentally change change urban warfare. Um, related to, to this, um, some of the recent um, 
including the armed conflict survey that the ISS published, these studies on, on current conflict are pretty uh, universal findings that conflict has become very protracted and conducted um, primarily by non-state actors, or at least involving non-state actors in almost all of the conflicts that um, are going on in the world right now. Um, and, and in terms of future warfare and future trends, many militaries are paying attention to the concept of hybrid or gray area conflicts. Do you see the future of war as something akin to the neither war nor peace sort of dystopia in which um, states will be able to have more deniability of, of, of their involvement in certain theaters and, um, and, and, and then conflict sort of devolving into a more protracted and messy sort of low intensity, but more protracted format? Um, well, that's sort of what all these concepts that I was uh, referring to earlier are actually trying to figure out. It's this idea, you know, that, that we're going to be in a continuous competition with our potential adversaries or like our competitors, right? That's what is really big here in the United States, that the United States is in a, involved in a great power competition with China and Russia. And this uh, competition is continuous and goes along somewhere you know wanders around along the spectrum between uh, peace and war and and most often it's not gonna really really go full scale to the war scale um, um, um on that on that spectrum um having said that i think i think what's important for the listeners to understand is why do you have these gray zone conflicts to begin with and um why you have what you also were talking about in terms of hybrid warfare it's a loaded term i know but in any case, I think what it, you know, the background to all of this is that that the reason why you have reduced high intensity combat between great powers is because the United States military capability for waging high intensity warfare is just so tremendously bigger than any other power in the world that all these other powers had to come up with creative ways to confront the United States, but also NATO countries. Um, they would probably still lose a state on state conflict with um, the United States and NATO in every possible way. Um, of course, that's changing now, but I think what's often not discussed in this context is that this is really just the weapons of the weak, so to speak. They are looking for asymmetric capabilities to really exploit um, US and NATO and US allies in Asia, conventional superiority in the military, in all military domains. And so I think um, if you look at what's happening in China, for example, and this massive um, you know, investment in conventional capabilities, not just asymmetrical capabilities in China, um, I do think that we're going to see an evening out of military capabilities at the conventional level, which theoretically would increase the chances of high intensity warfare between the great powers. And of course, I'm leaving out politics, diplomacy, all these other factors. I mean, wars don't happen in a vacuum. Of course, there are so many other factors here. But um, I do think that we should not overestimate the impact of hybrid warfare, gray zone coercion scenarios and so forth. I think the principal objective of every single military in Europe and in the United States and among US allies and European allies and partners um, is to um, maintain strong conventional deterrence in order to really dissuade any potential adversary from really trying to try to try um, their luck when it comes to conventional warfare because high intensity warfare will remain will remain um, the most costly, the bloodiest and the most destructive form of warfare in the future. And I think um, perhaps it's wrong to phrase it like that, but I think, you know, talking about hybrid warfare and gray zone coercion 
um, scenarios is actually a good problem to have because it, you know, the likelihood that this is going to escalate to full-scale war and not as high as if you own the options of really high-intensity combat with a peer a near-peer adversary. I think you're absolutely right, France, on the, um, the 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 China comment that you made and the investment that China is putting both in the conventional, but also in the emerging technology sectors. Um, I mean, one is seen as uh, becoming a near peer or, or a peer competitor to the US. You're absolutely right, I think, to say that uh, hybrid for the moment is is a slow encroachment of power projection and changing the status quo on the air or in the air or on the sea, but, but more, you know, not the defining uh, factor here. I think ultimately um, China very much, you know, the effort it's putting into its conventional capabilities is is somewhat of a signal that um, they take that seriously still. Um, and that emerging technologies are more like a leapfrog technology. But again, that goes back to your initial point of who's developing the doctrine that goes with that and all of the other encompassing uh, factors to make emerging technologies uh, helpful and useful. So, I suppose my question here is, do democratic societies or authoritarian societies have some, uh, do either of those have a uh, an upper hand when it comes to not just investing in emerging technologies, but creating the uh, the thought that goes around them? Yes. And I, 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 perhaps I wouldn't make the distinction between democratic and, and authoritarian societies and how they are impacting future war fighting i think you know i think it's actually a good good way of thinking about it the way you put it um i would just perhaps say that there's a greater propensity for democratic societies and historically speaking um for countries uh within the nato alliance and particularly the united states to really trust more trust their uh, lower echelons uh, within military hier- hierarchies to make up their own decisions, right? And I'm really mostly talking about uh, mission command, this idea that you get an objective and then you sort of solve the problem, this particular military problem um, yourself, um, unlike the old Soviet method, which was very much uh, prescriptive. And, you know, if you look at at, at, at Soviet plans, they were very much, um, okay, you go from here to there and then from there to to there. And, and there was very little... Um, flexibility involved in all of this, right? And so I think um, this idea of mission command is is going to be hugely important when it comes to future war fighting because it's really going to be one of the most instrument, instrumental factors when it comes to really figuring out how, how to come up with new operational concepts. You will need to rely on mission command much, much more than in the past if you talk about operating in a degraded environment, for example, where the enemy is jamming all your communications networks, where you really are cut off from your own forces because you know, you're more dispersed, um, your units are more dispersed in the battle space. And then it's really up to individual commanders to decide um, what to do and how to accomplish their objectives. And I think strong mission command is going to be crucial for that. And I guess, um, uh, you know, in order to determine also military power, it will be interesting how, for example, Russia is going to handle mission command or how China is actually going to handle mission command. And um, I think what's interesting that mission command obviously emerged in Germany, right? And Germany was not a democratic country, um, um, you know, when the, when mission command and the German armed forces had their heydays, so to speak. So, so I think it is possible for um, even undemocratic societies to delegate responsibilities to their soldiers in order to give them more autonomy in terms of decision making. But it's going to be interesting whether whether the PLA, PLA or even the Russian military are really going to move in that direction 
um, um, anytime soon. Uh, that is a really interesting point. I mean, just for our listeners uh, covering China, um, I, you know as well as I do, France, that the PLA has identified this as an area uh, needed for improvement. And again, there's a there's an interesting uh, added element here of how they might um, simplify or uh, or at least uh, speed up uh, decision making processes with the use of emerging technologies. But you know, in a system where you have political commissars at every uh, theater command level and um, the devolution of decision making uh, has has been difficult in the past, uh, where you have President Xi Jinping at the very top and center of the PLA in the uh, in the Central Military Commission, um, I think it's going to be hard. And I think they know those challenges, not that they're not working on them, but this is definitely an interesting area to follow. No, absolutely. And if I just can, you know, you mentioned political commissars and what perhaps not that many people know is that in the last two years of the Second World War, the German military also had um, the equivalent of political commissars um, who actually interfered in decision making, even at the company level at some points. And if you look at the combat performance of the Germans in the last two years of the war, it was significantly lower um, than in the first couple of years of the Second World War. And partially it can be attributed, not, you know, there are many factors, but from what my understanding is that that this interference, this political interference, has definitely reduced uh, combat effectiveness of the German land forces, at least when it comes to 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 waging war. So it's an interesting point and a good discussion to have in the future. Yeah, I think that could be a whole other episode. But maybe since you're right. new at the institute, friends, for our <laughs> listeners, I'm going to ask you a, a final question before Antonio closes off, which is um, how you became an expert on future warfare. Um, well, by studying military history, paradoxically, um, I was always interested in, in, in why countries actually lose wars. And uh, when I read up on military defeats, I noticed that by and large, it had to do with the fact that politicians, military commanders and other decision makers had a certain preconceived notion about what future warfare would look like. And most of the time, this turned out to be totally, totally wrong. I mean, think of the Napoleonic Wars, the First World War, but also the wars in Afghanistan, uh, in uh, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq over the last two decades. Um, there were some strong, strong preconceived notions that people held about how these wars are going to turn out, and it all turned out to be rather wrong in many ways. And um, um, just talking about double I double S, I, I think you know it would be a, a miss not to mention um, Michael Howard in this context. Um, he had an interesting quote a couple of decades ago, and I can't really recall it verbatim, but he essentially said that the job of people like me is really um, to acknowledge that I'll probably, or rather we will never get the future right when it comes to future war fighting, but that our real job is really about not being too badly wrong about all of this. And I think history, history definitely, history definitely helps in that regard. And I should say that there were instances where actually people like myself got it pretty right. Um, people don't know that, for example, um, US war gamers essentially pre um, were able to predict the entire Pacific war campaign in, in the 1940s, right? They sort of pretty much knew and came up with the operational concepts that ultimately brought victory uh, against Japan in the Second World War. And so I guess what I'm saying is there are, I would never say that it's completely impossible to predict in what direction the future of warfighting is going to go. I don't think we'll be able to really accurately describe how, how war is actually, the outcomes of war. I think that's much more the, the, you know, the bigger consideration here. Franz, do you commit to repeating this podcast in 2050 to see what you got right and wrong? 
Yes, absolutely. If I'm still around by then, um, um, you know, you can ha you have my word on it. <laughs> Good. We shall all listen to the podcast on our flying cars as we go to our um, offices, whatever that looks like. Uh, thank you very much, Franz. Uh, thank you also for you to, to for listening to us. And please subscribe to Sound Strategic for more in-depth discussions and to keep up to date with the latest trends in international security and armed conflicts. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and other social media. See you next time. <laughs>